Good morning, Lincoln Avenue. Open your Bibles up to a uh, new book, a uh, new series for us, uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. We haven't done it on Sunday morning for a while, so uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're actually going to read the whole first chapter and five verses of the the uh, <clears throat> second chapter. Um, wouldn't have to do that, but I really want to connect uh, that whole kind of sequence of events that happens there. I think that's really important, and I hope that'll come to light as we work through the message this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 1, if you'd like to stand, uh, you're welcome to do so. If you don't want to, that's fine as well. I will be reading for a little bit, so uh, don't want anybody falling, going down. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love and those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people, your servants, confessing the sins that we, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They're your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, at the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit, the prompting, the direction of your spirit inside of us. Father, it's hard for us to ask this, but God, we 
we ask that you give us a burden. Give us a stirring in our hearts, a heaviness, a weight about spiritual things that are undone, about work that needs to be accomplished, about people who need to hear the gospel, children who need to be ministered to. Father, lay that on us that we might respond in faith and obedience. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so I thought what might be helpful to to start off with this morning is to connect the book of Joshua with the book of Nehemiah. Since we just got done with the book of Joshua, I think it's, it's good for us to know where does Nehemiah occur in the timeline of the Bible. So if any of you have been to our God Story Project, that's kind of what we do in our God Story Project, is we spend four or five weeks, just make sure you got the whole story, Genesis to Revelation, creation to second coming, kind of in your minds about how how is God's story laid out in the scriptures. And so maybe that's not super clear for you. And so what I want to do is let's go from where we've been for the last two months in Joshua to Nehemiah, okay? So in Joshua, we left the people in the promised land, right? That's kind of how Joshua ends. Joshua has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, or Moses brought them out of Egypt. Uh, Joshua brings them into the promised land. They've got their inheritance. They're living the life that God has provided and promised for them. But do you remember how, how Joshua ends? Joshua tells them, look, if, if you don't heed the word of the Lord, if you don't, if you don't worship him and him alone, you know, trouble is going to come upon you. And the end of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges talks about how that happened. Uh, about the third generation after Joshua forgot the Lord and they began to worship the idols of their neighboring nations. And man, the book of Judges both the saddest and weirdest book in the Bible. Uh, it, sin brings sad things and it brings weird things, okay? And, and that's the book of Judges. You, you see this kind of, kind of them repenting and almost, you know, getting back with the Lord and then falling again and over and over and over. And it's just this destructive uh, period in, na- in the nation of Israel. Well, the book of Judges ends and, and with the book of 1st, 2nd Samuel, we have the, the beginning of the monarchy. Right, So Saul is the first king of Israel. And then after Saul, there's David and Solomon. Now, if you're an Israelite, that's the glory days. You know how everybody talks about the glory days? Okay, That's the glory days of Israel, is, is the kings of David and Solomon. After Solomon, his son Rehoboam makes a really dumb mistake right at the beginning of his, his, his reign, and it splits the kingdom in half. Okay, So ten tribes go uh, to the north, and they're called Ephraim or Israel. They retain the name of Israel. Two tribes um, in the south are, are split off, and they're the, the kingdom of Judah, okay? So at 1st Samuel, 1st Kings, 1st Chronicles, you have a whole series, a whole centuries of kings, good and bad, mostly bad, honestly. Uh, don't follow the Lord, keep continuing to fall worse and worse into idolatry and sins. And you have prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, all those guys who keep saying, if you don't turn back to God, he's going he's gonna, to take you into exile well in 722 bc that happens the assyrians come in and they take over the northern 10 tribes and the and the northern 10 tribes go into exile 130 years later in 586 bc the babylonians come in and they destroy jerusalem they break down the walls they destroy the temple they cart everything away and they take the rest of the southern kingdom into exile into babylon Okay? Now, in the exile, which was 70 years, remember Jeremiah the prophet said, all right, if, if, you, don't, if you don't listen to God, he's going to take you into exile for 70 years. 
Well, that happens. And during that time, the book of Daniel, other books are written. In fact, the book of Daniel is really cool because if you're a history buff, you get to see what's happening inside the palace when the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon. Uh, They don't realize it, but the Medes and the Persians have dammed up the river, and they go underneath the wall, and and we get to read about that in the book of Daniel. And so the Medes and the Persians take over the Babylonians. So Israel is still in captivity, but now they got a new boss, okay? The Medes and the Persians have taken over the Babylonian Empire. Well, 70 years goes by, and sure enough, God is so faithful. That's one of the things you see when you get a full story of the Bible. It's just how faithful God is. After 70 years, guess what happens? God prompts the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, and he gets this wild hair. We know where it comes from. It comes from God. But he's like, hey, all you Jews, y'all can go home, you know? And so they, they begin to travel back in wave after wave. Now, they've been gone for a long time, and so many of them don't, have never been to Jerusalem. They haven't never been to Israel. So they start to go back in waves. The first wave is led by a man named Zerubbabel, okay? So if you're thinking about a name for a, a kid, I just think that'd be a great one. I think in kindergarten, can you, can you imagine it? You know, what's your name? You know, boo you know, and what? You know, all the other kids. Anyway, Zerubbabel leads the, the first wave back, okay, into to Jerusalem, all right? 80 years later, this is a slow process, okay? Ezra leads the second wave. In fact, if you would go, the book before Nehemiah is your book of Ezra, all right? Ezra leads the second wave. 13 years after that, Nehemiah leads the third wave. Now, we're not there yet, okay? We're at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, and he is still in Persia. Now, who is Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, right? The word word of God tells us that. It says he's the cupbearer of the king. He's an Israelite who was born in Persia. He was born in the exile, probably like a really smart dude, like scored off the charts in the ACT, you know, top of his class, uh, had lots of leadership potential. The king snatches him up. He rises up in government to the position of the cupbearer to the king. Now, what's the cupbearer to the king do? Well, Short version of that is he tastes the food and the wine that the king drinks to make sure nobody's poisoned him. How would you like that? You know, you're the guy that eats the poison first, right? Uh, But he's a protector of the king. But it's actually much more than that. So as you read history, what you find out is because the cupbearer was always with the king, like he ate ate all the meals with the king, he was always there, he, he, he became almost like a chief of staff, almost like a chief of security, almost like a personal assistant to the king, all right? So, man, isn't this cool? God orchestrates it where one of the Israelite exiles is actually raised up to be pretty much in one of the most powerful positions in the Persian Empire, all right? And that's where we pick up our story. So what happens? Well, Nehemiah's brother, whose name is Hananiah, travels to Jerusalem. Remember, they can go back now. He travels to Jerusalem. Probably took years, you know, to get there and back. He gets there 700 miles away. He gets there. He comes back, and he gives a report to Nehemiah about what has happened. That report is in verse 3. He says, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, this was a horrible report, okay? And the worst part of it was that the walls of Jerusalem were still in rubble. Now, now what that means in this day and age is your city is never going to thrive, you're never going to flourish. You know, when you had no walls in that day, that meant that any marauding band that came through would just wipe you out. They would just take whatever they wanted. Any small army coming in, you had no protection against that. And so any city that had no walls basically could never, could never thrive. It could never 
flourish. All right? And, and, and so, so Nehemiah hears that report that, that Jerusalem, and, and remember, we're going we're gonna to hit this here in just a second, but just remember, Jerusalem was, to, to some degree, a symbol of, of the God of the Bible, right? I mean, it was supposed to be a light to the nations. It was supposed to be where the presence of God dwelt. And he hears that this city is still in rubble. The remnant are ashamed. They're, they're not thriving. They're not growing. They're, they're, they're not prospering. It's not being rebuilt. How would you expect Nehemiah to respond to that report? All right, now, now keep in mind, he's 700 miles away. He's probably never been there. It's been over a century since Jerusalem actually was thriving. 100 years, you know? I mean, think about that. Over 100, 150, all right? It's been a long time. How would you, how would you think that Nehemiah would respond to that news? I kind of think he would have said something like, ah, that is a shame, you know? That, that's really too bad. I hate to hear that. That's tragic. Listen to how he responds. It's up a notch or two from that, okay? Ready? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, really interesting thing. When you look at the month in, in chapter 1, 1, I know it doesn't mean anything to us because they have a different calendar. And then you look at the month in chapter 2, verse 1. You know, scholars are able to tell how much time. Four months, four months, Nehemiah, when he was at home, wept, mourned, prayed, and fasted. All right, now, why? Why? One of the ways that I want to describe that for you is, is I want to describe that for you in the sense of a burden of what ought to be. Okay, what ought to be. In other words, Nehemiah had this strong sense of what Jerusalem ought to be, what God's people ought to be. And whenever he found out that that wasn't the case, God's people were not what they ought to be, Jerusalem was not what it ought to be, it crushed him, all right? Now, I, I, I wonder, is there anything in your life, is there any news in your life that would bring you directly to your knees, that would cause you to weep and mourn, and that would cause you to fast and pray every night for four months. Is there any kind of news that would do that? I think there probably is. Let me take some stabs at it, okay? Maybe not to fast and pray for four months, but I think there is news that would break us, that would crush us in that way, okay? Here's some, here's some options. I think that if we get the call that somebody we really care about, a loved one, a family member, a child has died. I, I think that's the kind of news that would bring us to our knees, that would cause weeping and mourning, just like Nehemiah, that would cause us maybe even to fast and pray for an extended period of time. I think that maybe the news of a loss of some financial thing in our life. Did you, many of you remember back in, what was it, 2008 or so, uh, five, with the Enron scandal, remember that? Uh, at that time, we had some people in our church that had most of their retirement in that and just lost all that, you know? I mean, that's something that probably would cause some people to have this crushing heaviness on them for a long time. Or maybe, maybe, maybe the loss of a career or loss of a job or, or maybe a relationship falling apart. Unfortunately, I've had the experience of, of walking through divorce with lots of people. Sometimes they didn't see it coming at all. 
You know, and all of a sudden, what ought to be, you know, they thought, I ought to spend my life with this person. We, we, were, we ought to grow old together, and now all that's gone in a moment, and it just brings this crushing heaviness to them. Or maybe, maybe have, you, have you ever had the experience of known someone who was falsely accused? And you were falsely accused of something and, and this weight of judgment came down upon you. And man, it just, it just resulted in this crushing heaviness, okay? Uh, those are some things that I think you'll identify with. I think you and I can say, man, that would, that would crush me. Man, that would, that would bring me to weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. But Nehemiah has that response. The response that you and I would have of someone very close to us passing. Nehemiah has that when he hears the report about a city 700 miles away. Why? Doesn't that seem a little too much, right? Well, the answer to that is, is that Nehemiah gets his ought, okay? See, that's what I want you to think of today, is, is when you have a burden for something, it's because something ought to be one way and it's not, Okay? So, so in other words, my child ought to live, and they didn't. Or my marriage ought to have thrived, and it's not. Or my finances ought to be this way, and they're not. Okay, M- Nehemiah got much of his ought from the Word of God. In other words, when, when, when Nehemiah read in the Word of God the way things ought to be, and they weren't that way, it crushed him. All right, so, so a book that Nehemiah would have had access to is the book of Isaiah. Listen to the way that Isaiah talks about Jerusalem. Okay, are you ready? Zion is another word for Jerusalem, by the way. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words, Jerusalem is supposed to be a light to the nations. Verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name and that, and that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called by my delight. You shall be called my delight is in here and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall not be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise to the earth. You see, Nehemiah knew that the word of God says that's what Jerusalem is is supposed to be. That's what the people of God are supposed to be. And so when Nehemiah saw that that's what the Word of God said, and when he saw that it wasn't what it was supposed to be, it crushed him. It crushed him. Now, does the same thing happen to us? So when when I opened my Bible last week, remember we were in Joshua 24, uh, kind of a chapter about family, remember? We did a whole bunch on family worship. Okay, in Psalm 78, it's one of our pivotal verses there, it says that, that we, that God's people, should make sure that the next generation of children, not just our children, but everybody's children, know the glorious deeds of the Lord. If that doesn't happen, if we find out that's not happening, if we find out there's children in Woodward who do not know the glorious deeds of the Lord, does it, does it tear us up at all? According to Ephesians 5, 
Husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and the church ought to submit to Christ as the church does to Christ. When we find out that there's marriages in our fellowship, that that's not happening, does that, does that bother us? Does it even make us sad? According to the Bible, the poor ought to be cared for, and the homeless ought to find shelter, and the orphan ought to have a, ho- ought to have a home. Does it grieve us when they don't? According to Psalm 67, all the nations of the earth ought to be glad in God and sing His praise. According to the book of Revelation, people from every tongue and tribe and nation ought to hear the gospel and respond in faith. Does it bother us when they don't? I'm going to use a word that the old timers are going to know. I guess I'm an old timer now because... I, I, I use this all. I don't hear it very much anymore, but, but we used to use it all the time. We would say, we would say the Lord's given me a burden. It, you, you know what I'm talking about when I say that? See, I think a lot of people won't, won't understand that, so let me explain that. What, what they meant by that was God laid something heavy on them. Okay, that's what a burden is, right? A burden is when you're carrying something heavy. And so uh, what they meant by that was that the Lord laid this burden on their heart, this heaviness, this weight about, about something that needed to be different. Like, like, like it ought to be this, but it's not, right? That's what was happening with Nehemiah. Jerusalem ought to be a light to the nations. It ought to be the place where, where God's glory dwells, where his, where his worship is praised. And it's not. It's a pile of rubble. And man, that just settled on him like a rock. And he couldn't rest until it was fixed. And, and so what I would ask you is, do you, do you, have you ever experienced that? The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 talks about a burden of his. This is, a, this is one of those passages where you're like, if he didn't clarify this, you'd be like, nah. He says in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He thinks we're not going to believe him. I am not lying. <laughs> My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Basically, Paul says that he is so crushed in spirit over the fact that the Israelites in his day had rejected the Messiah Jesus. He is so burdened by that that if it were possible, he would wish that he could be cut off from Christ if they could be saved. He could wish that he would go to hell if they could go to heaven. He says, I know you're not going to believe it, but that's the kind of burden that is on my soul. And and so I would ask you again, are you burdened about anything like that? And and maybe even a better question would be, are you burdened about things, but it's never spiritual things? Like when, you know, someone gives you a, a door ding at Walmart, you know, you come out and there's this nice little bullseye on your door, you know? Does that, like, make you sick, you know? Like, like you, you tore up on the inside about it and you, you can't sleep that night? But the fact that, that there are entire nations that have no gospel witness, that doesn't bother you at all. In fact, you forget about it. The fact that there are foster kids and orphans, the fact that in, 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 in India, in Psalm 91 orphanage in Baraksum, there's all these kids that have no mom and no dad and no money and no one takes care of them. And if we don't act, they just die and no one cares. 
How about my door ding? Oh, I can't believe someone did that. What's your burden? Do you have one? Well, Nehemiah did. That's what, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Nehemiah had a burden from God, this crushing weight about what ought to be but isn't. All right? And that burden led him to pray. Okay, here, here's, here's how you're going to know if you have a burden from the Lord. It's going to drive you to your knees. In fact, I, I would say that the reason that a lot of people are not very consistent in their prayer life is they really don't have anything heavy on their hearts, right? Like, like if, if there's nothing heavy, if everything's just kind of, you know, well, it's just going on, life's going on, and no big deal, nothing's any big deal really, then you're probably not going to be very faithful in prayer. But when you have something heavy laid upon you, that's when you are relentless in your prayer. And Nehemiah is relentless in his prayer. Notice he says he fasted and prayed before God day and night. Verse verse 6 says day and night for the people of Israel. Night and day he is coming to God in prayer. Now what is he praying? Well, we don't have time because I want to get to chapter 2 to talk about his whole prayer. But let, let me talk about one particular kind of prayer that Nehemiah, or one, one particular element of Nehemiah's prayer. And that's in verse 6 and 7, okay? So look at it here. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open, he's praying to God, to hear the prayer of your servant, that I may now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Now, the interesting thing that he does here uh, that I want to point out to you is in his prayer, day and night for four months, he confesses the corporate sin of Israel, all right? Now, I wouldn't even bring this up if it weren't for these, these facts. When Daniel prays in the exile, he does the exact same thing, Daniel 9. When Ezra prays in the exile, he does the exact same thing, Ezra 9. All right, so, so everybody we find praying in this time period, you know what they do? They confess the sins of their ancestors, of their nation. Even though Nehemiah was not even born when Israel was in Israel. When the sins were being committed that caused them to go into exile, he wasn't even in his mother's womb. It was like 150 years yet to come. And yet, in his prayer, day and night, Daniel does the same thing, Ezra does the same thing. They confess the sins of their nation. A couple things struck me about that. Number one is the fact that so many of these guys do it in the Bible. And number two, that I don't. That was one of the things that gripped me. I was like, you know what? I don't do this. Not very often. I have, like, isolated instances. But I don't do this very often. And then the thing that I begin to think about is, I, actually, when I hear you guys praying, I don't hear you doing that either. Now, let's talk about why, okay? So why would we do this? Okay, let's, let's, let's be clear this is not the same as repenting and confessing your own sin, right? So when I repent and confess my own sin, that means I'm going a certain direction in my life. I've got this bad attitude. I've got this bad heart. I've got unforgiveness. I've got whatever it is. It's sin, okay? And, and the Word of God kind of hits me. That's usually the way it happens for me. It hits me, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I, I don't want to sin against God. I, I don't want to bring the consequences of sin on my life. I want to trust Jesus. His way is always better. So I turn away from my sin, and I turn back to him, 
and I confess it, and I get right with him. I put it on the cross, I believe his forgiveness, and I begin to walk in obedience, all right? That is what we do with our personal sin. You can't repent of your nation's sin. But evidently, according to Nehemiah, you can confess it, right? You can't repent of it because you didn't do it. But, but you can confess it. Now, now, ask the question, but why would we? Well, here was an interesting thought to me. How do people usually handle it when their church disappoints them? Or with their family that are Christians when they let them down? How do people usually handle it when someone who, who's a believer in their sphere of influence falls into sin? You know how we usually, we, we do things like this. We blame. We talk about them to other people sometimes with our head doing this thing, you know. You know what we do sometimes? We, we have an attitude of superiority. You know, do you remember in Luke where that, uh, that tax gatherer uh, and the Pharisee go into the temple together and the tax gatherer, he goes over in the corner by himself where nobody can see him and he's beating his breast saying what a sinner he is and, and the, the, the Pharisee, he's like this. He stands up in front of everybody. He's like, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy over there. <laughs> you know, I'm such a great dude, you know. Sometimes we do that, maybe not that obvious, but, you know, we, we pride ourselves and, well, I didn't do that. You know what we do a lot of times? We distance ourselves from people. We're like, man, they're in sin, especially if they let us down, you know, like, like Karen's doing a funeral meal and, you know, she, she calls all the ladies and says, hey, come, you know, bring your stuff and, like, not one of them shows up, you know. She found out they all went to the movies, you know. And then, you know, you know what there's a tendency to do? There's a tendency to be like, well, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be very friendly to you. You know, you, you're a sinner, you know. I think all of those responses are, are a little bit steeped in pride. But, but Nehemiah's confessing corporately the sins of others, actually, I think is a very humbling thing. It's humbling in this way. It's humbling in that we acknowledge that God, I'm a part of the problem. This whole problem of sin, this whole problem of brokenness, God, I'm a part of it. Man, would you, are, do you ever do that? You know, when, when you're lamenting, and there's a lot to lament in our country right now about the struggles of our country, do, do you ever agree, but God, I, I know I'm part of the problem too, God. I know I'm not innocent in this thing. I think that pleases our Father when he sees that spirit in us. Just as a father, I'm a dad. You know what I don't like in my kids? I don't like when one of my kids, he's been tearing it up all day, you know? He's just been breaking every rule that we got. And then, you know, toward evening, his sister, you know, breaks a rule that he happened to not break that day. And then he kind of stands up like the Pope, you know? And he's like, I can't believe, Dad, that, you know, she did that, you know? And I want to be like, well, maybe you didn't do that, but you did everything else, you know? I, I mean, Right? And I think Nehemiah comes to God in that way. You know, he's like, God, we have messed it up, God. We. Second thing he does is the promises of God. He claims the promises of God. I, I'm not going to spend very much time here because we just covered this in Caleb. Remember, remember with Caleb? Caleb's like, God, you promised you would give me the hill country even though I'm now 85 and it's 45 years later. 
You, you promised it, so I'm, I'm counting on it, right? Joshua did this from Joshua 1. We talked about that. He said, God, you promised to give us this land. And so it doesn't matter what kind of fortifications. It doesn't matter about Jericho. It doesn't matter about their armies. You promised, so we're going to do it. Nehemiah does the same thing. Look in, look in verse um, 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you. And he's like, God, that happened. You did that. Verse 9. But you also said, God, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen. Nehemiah says, God, you promised that if we would return to you, that it wouldn't matter how busted up we were. It wouldn't matter how broken we are. It wouldn't matter how far we're scattered. God, you said you would bring us back. It's kind of like, here's what these guys do. Nehemiah, Moses, Ezra, Daniel. They all grab onto the promises of God and they, they, they use them like a lever, you know? They stick them in and they're like, God, you promised. It seems like that we shouldn't do that to God, should we? He's invited us to. He said, I'm faithful to my word. That's what he's told us. I'm faithful to my word and I will not lie. And so you grab onto my promises and you, you come and pray them. You pray them. You say, God, you said, you said you were going to do this. And I'm trusting you to do it. The Bible says that Nehemiah did this night and day for four months. Now, here's, here's the sequence, okay? So when God gives you a burden for something, right? God gives you this crushing weight that there's something that ought to be that's not. And that leads you to pray. It leads you to pray in this way, to confess your, your own sins and your own brokenness. That thing's broken, God, but I'm broken too. And God, you promised that if we return, you'd fix it. A burden always leads to prayer and relentless prayer. Oh, here's the scary part. Always leads to risky action. You didn't want to hear that, did you? We were hoping like it'd be... A burden always leads to prayer, which always leads to somebody else handling it, right? That's what, that's what we want, right? Burden, prayer, somebody else, all right? But that's not actually the case. When God gives you a burden, it's so that you will pray to the point that you are ready to do whatever it takes to be a part of the solution. That's the way God works. And that's the way God worked with Nehemiah. You know the reality? If there were ever a guy who could say, God, Jerusalem's broken, your people are broken. Well, you know, God, it's, it's terrible. But God, I can't go. Sorry. It was Nehemiah. Like he really had that excuse. You know why? This is hard for us to kind of get our heads around, but when you're the cupbearer to the king, you can't just walk in and say, I quit, you know? It doesn't work with kings. I mean, it works in art, right? You guys can quit. You can go tomorrow and quit, you know? Probably think it through, but you can, all right? But you don't do that with the king, right? Like you are his servant, right? And you don't get to just quit. And in fact, you, you actually, you don't get to be sad in front of him even. Like when you're the cupbearer, like your job is always to make the king happy. And your job is always to, to be presentable before the king. And you're, that's your job. And if you don't do your job, I mean, you just might find yourself being executed. Remember, remember Exodus? And when Joseph's in prison, who comes to him? Two of the king's servants, remember the baker and the cupbearer, wasn't it? You know, and, and one of those guys gets executed. So like he's really got a legitimate excuse. Like he can't. He's the cupbearer to the king. Number two, 
how's he going to rebuild the walls? Like, like the walls of a city, okay? Like, all, you know, I mean, wouldn't you be doing this? Like, okay, God, but, you know, I mean, they're broken down, but God, I mean, that's like millions of dollars, God. Labors, materials. Like, God, how are we going to do that? So he's got a burden, and he's, he's got relentless prayer, but really, he can't go. We, you know what happens, though? What happens when you have a burden, and God won't let, he won't let his hand off of you. And when you relentlessly pray, you know what happens? You come to the point that it doesn't matter. You're willing to risk it all to do what God says. You're willing to put it all on the table, like, like all of it. And, and Nehemiah comes to that point that he's ready to risk it all. So here's his plan. He's essentially going to quit. He's going to pray. He's going to pray for four months, and he's going to wait for that right time, the, the leadership of the Spirit, when the door is open, and then he's going to go in, and he's going to say this, King, I quit, essentially. You know, I, I need you to let me off for a decade or so. And by the way, also, I, I want to go rebuild a city that's 700 miles away, and would you mind paying for that, you know? And would you mind, you know, writing a check and, and providing all the resources and providing all the materials and providing the labor? And, and would you get me there? And, and by the way, would you write all the nations around there and tell them to leave me alone or else, you know? King, would you do all that? That's his plan. I know what you're thinking. That's a bad plan, guy. This is a pagan king. He doesn't care anything about Jerusalem. Oh, isn't it, isn't it amazing what God will do, though? When he lays a burden on you and when you're faithful to pray. And so that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what he does. He has a burden. He, he goes in prayer and then he comes to a point where he's ready to risk it all. Look, look, in, look in chapter two. I, I like how this plays out. He says in verse 1, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. He had never let his emotions show. Why? Because that was risky, right? He ne he never, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't come to the king for things, not, not when you're the cupbearer. He said, I've never been sad in his presence. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad? That day, it was the day. He's got tears going down his eyes. He's all grieved. He hands the, 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 the wine to the king. He's, the king's like, why are you sad? Are you sick? You're not sick. What is this? And then notice at the end of verse 2. Then I was very much afraid. Why is he afraid? Wouldn't you be? You know what he did? He just pushed everything out on the table. Okay? He's risking it all. His house, which was probably pretty nice, you know, his family, his, his position, his income, his life. He, he doesn't, he, either the king is going to respond how the king would normally respond and execute him, or God's going to move. But he puts it all out there. He says, I was very much afraid. And then notice what he does next. I, I, he says, um, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates are destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You, you know, he does one of those little shotgun prayers there. Isn't that cool, you know? He's like, okay, God, please, 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 you, you got to do it. Praise the God of heaven, takes a deep breath and says, would you send me to rebuild Jerusalem? Would you give me everything I need? 
He's risking it all. I love it. The burden that God lays on you will inevitably lead you to prayer, which will inevitably lead you to risk for Him. To put aside your comfort and your security and to be used by God to make what ought to be a reality. Listen, your, your burden will compel you to open up your home to the homeless and the orphan. Your burden will compel you to get on an airplane and to go share the good news with people who may not want to hear it. Your burden will propel you to risk your position at work, to share the gospel with your boss and your coworkers. Your burden will compel you to lay aside your nice, clean plan. Listen, we all want nice, clean plans for our life. But you know what a burden does? It brings you to the point where you're like, God, all right, that was never that good anyway. Go ahead, mess it up. Mess it up for your glory. What, God, whatever, whatever it takes so that I can be a part of making what ought to be right, right. That's risky. But is it really? If you've ever read uh, John Piper's book on risk, it's fantastic. Well, what Piper's argument he makes is, is that, that God has actually come in for every Christian and he has taken away the ultimate risk. Right? Like, how's this thing going to end for a born-again believer? Well, it doesn't matter how we get it there. You know how it's going to end? Resurrection. Join to Jesus Christ forever and ever as an heir of the new heavens and the new earth with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's how it's going to end. Like, it doesn't matter how the story goes on here. It's going to end there. So God has actually taken away the ultimate risk. And now he said, okay, I took that off the table. Now are you, are you willing to risk everything else? House. Income, relationships, family. I've taken the other all away. You're secure there. But are you willing to risk it all? Remember, it was such a, I know I've mentioned it all the time, but it was such a huge moment in my life as I sat across the table from that, that converted Muslim who is an incredible gospel soul winner in a Muslim police state. And she had, the, she had a family, she told me about her children, and I said, I said, aren't you afraid? You know, she told me about witnessing to her neighbors. I said, aren't you afraid that the wrong people are going to find out and, and you're going to be killed, your family's going to be killed? And she said, I have eternal life. I have it. In other words, it's not really a risk because I know where this deal ends. And she had such a burden for her nation, God-given burden, such a relentless prayer for her nation. She was willing to push everything else out on the table and say, God, whatever it takes for me to be a part of people who ought to know Jesus coming to know Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do something that, man, it's maybe a funny thing to do on Sunday morning, but I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you would consider asking God to give you a burden. That, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Because usually what we do is we say, God, take away my burdens, right? Like, and, and there is a place for that. There's some burdens you shouldn't carry, anxiety and fear. You should ask God to take those away. But, but I wonder if you wouldn't ask God this morning to give you a spiritual burden.
for God to lay out before you something that ought to be. It ought to be in your life. It ought to be in your family. It ought to be in our church. It ought to be in our community. It ought to be in our nation. It ought to be in our world. Something that's wrong that ought to be different. And you would say, God, my, give me a burden. Lay something on me. I think it's going to be different for every person, actually. I think that's the way the body of Christ works. God, lay it on my heart. Give me a, a relentless prayer before you for that thing. And then, God, give, give me the ability to say, God, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be a part of that. To be a part of what you want done there being done. I'm telling you, folks, that's the way we ought to want to live. That way right there. Father, I ask you, God, to, to not let us cruise through this life as if nothing really matters. Because, Father, we know that there are a lot of things that really matter. We know, Father, that the gospel matters. We know, Father, that people who don't know Jesus, they matter. We know, Father, that there are those who need the hands and feet of Jesus. There are the orphan and the widow and the refugee and the stranger and those in distress and the poor. Father, we know that there are some things that really matter. And Father, I pray that they would matter to us. That you would put on us a burden, a weight that, God, we would be able to come to you with relentlessly. And that you would so shape our heart that we could we could step out in whatever, whatever it takes to meet those needs. God, use us in that way. Use us like you did Nehemiah. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.